Welcome to another episode of Straight Talk with the Doc. My name is Haley, and I'm joined by addiction medicine specialist, Dr. Bott. Hi, Haley. How are you doing today? I'm good. Today, we're going to talk about a term that has been floating around recently in the media, although it's not exactly a new idea. That idea is being California sober. Some define California sober as being sober, but still using alcohol and marijuana. What does it mean to you, Dr. Bot? Yeah, no, California sober is a term that's been around for uh, a short period of time. And I think it's it's created a little bit of controversy um, in the addiction recovery community because it's hard to define. And it seems to um, be interpreted differently by different people, maybe by different group of people. Um, but, you know, from my understanding of what its intention is, is, is like those who consider themselves California sober are are claiming to not be using the substances that they considered the hardcore um, addicted substances that they struggled with in their life and now are using what might be considered more benign uh, or the ones that are legal more uh, uh, alcohol or those places where cannabis uh, is is legalized um, those that simply might have less um, initial harm, although we know that alcohol and cannabis can cause destruction in many people's lives, but at least perceived harm. Uh, often, I think California sober includes other uses of other psychedelics or hallucinogens that um, don't really alter too much of a sensorium um, the same way that other drugs could. So yeah, I, I believe it's, it's, it's a term used for those who have stopped using the drug that they consider themselves addicted to and using a perceived less uh, or less harmful or more moderate consumption of other potentially more acceptable substances. But uh, it's definitely a hard uh, thing to define. Right. I mean, but just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's good or better. You know, take alcohol, for example. Uh, for sure. I mean, cigarettes are legal and alcohol is legal. And in many places, you know, uh, that cannabis is legal, that does not people mean people are not getting intoxicated or having negative consequences. And I think that can get distorted in that definition. And that's why I think people have an issue with it, because it's a slippery slope. People who are pursuing something that gets them high and have even used the same substance while getting intoxicated with their addicted substances, if you can call it some way different, um, yeah, it, it's it's very hard to say um, where something starts and where something ends, and when where that um, overlap can create risk for that harmful behavior returning again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the level of harm though that people use as an argument. So, I mean, if someone recovers from a heroin addiction but still has a glass of wine on occasion. You know, I guess that's better. Oh, it is better, but can they call themselves sober? So, yeah, I think that perspective depends on really what school of thought you're coming from. You know, I think people in recovery define things differently. And, you know, there is an abstinence-based, um, you know, perspective for many people that if they are using or were addicted to a certain substance or a multiple substances, that in their mind, recovery or sobriety only is defined when you don't use any other mind-altering substances. So some go as so far as that not to include even prescribed medications. 
And we know from the medical community, um, we don't look at it that way. We, we understand that, um, you know, addiction is, is defined as a brain disease, um, that it can be treated with other medications uh, that are FDA approved. And those medications often are needed in order to uh, prevent further harm, to stop being addicted to their uh, illicit substances and to live healthier lives. So, um, I mean, that's one extreme again. So, um, you know, using illicit substances and then, um, you know, being in recovery from those. And if somebody's having a drink uh, or, or smoking cannabis, yes, can that be looked at as a harm reduction uh, perspective? And if their quality of life improves and they're functioning in a healthy way, um, then what does it look any different than somebody who may have never suffer from an addiction in the first place. And I think that is really what uh, that that outlook uh, is uh, is comparing is that, hey, you know, if they are functioning like someone who never suffered with an addiction, um, why can't we then continue to use substances in a way that doesn't cause us, um, you know, consistent harm or negative consequences? So um, that might be something also looked at in different areas of the world. I think different areas of the world define and look at addiction a little bit different than we do here in the United States. That's true. And I mean, you mentioned, you know, obviously people take prescription medications when they are in recovery, but it's really about that intent of why somebody is taking any type of substance. Yeah. And we, we've spoken about that before. And I think that's really the, the, that that's a great word. And I know we've talked about it. Intent. What is the intention? If your intention is to get high and have an altered state of mind, and in that altered state of mind, it's causing you to behave uh, or and feel differently to the extent that it causes all these negative consequences that, um, you know, define addiction. Um, but I guess the, the, the problem here is, is that using alcohol and cannabis often is or was coexisting at this time that people were using those other illicit substances. And for many people, those are kind of like the gateway of how they use those illicit substances in the first place. So I think where the risk lies is how is the brain teasing itself out from the high or the altered sense of emotion and feeling and sensations caused by alcohol and cannabis or other psychedelics, not somehow hitting similar neurotransmitters and neurobiological receptor sites that can then kindle or unmask or crave the other illicit substances. Um, so um, it's it's a very difficult thing to tease out and it's hard to measure in terms uh, scientifically and um, on, on a personal level. And so I, I believe as a, as a medical doctor that, that it's a risky thing for those people who are addicted or, uh, or suffer from addiction to heroin, cocaine, methamphetamines, whatever, to think that, you know, this is the approach to take. I'm not saying that it can't happen. No, I think each individual situation is a case by case basis. Um, there are many people that have used um, other substances and then have have been able to drink alcohol and live successfully without relapsing on other things. But that might not work for everybody. So um, this this approach is not a one size fits all approach. It has to be customized. It has to be done while, uh, you know, working with somebody professionally or with a, um, 
intact uh, recovery environment, um, whether if it's personal, family, friends, whatever. But uh, it's definitely not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on the risks that you mentioned, you know, the dangers of attempting to be California sober? The dangers is, is going back to using the substances that you think you are not or were, was your harmful substance. So, you know, again, if somebody used cannabis and alcohol and um, segued into using hard, harder drugs, and those are the things that they um, consider themselves addicted to. Well, you know, everything in the mind, it's it's related. So, you know, triggers, um, whether it's environmental, it's behavioral, if it's it's biological, um, you know, there is an association between that memory and that motivation that led to certain drug-seeking behaviors. And a lot of this reward mechanisms are, are, um, they're the common pathway. It's similar in the brain. So, you know, the, the risk is to relapse on those original substances that they think that they are, you know, that were the harder drugs that they were addicted to. And, uh, and I think that's what people um, are concerned about with that term or with that behavior. Nobody wants anybody to relapse, you know, because they thought they were doing the right thing or the healthier thing by using alcohol or weed or other psychedelics and then go back to use heroin. Right. So for those who may be listening who have, I guess in quotation marks, have had success with this, you know, they stopped using heroin, um, but, you know, they still drink or use marijuana. Why do people get addicted to certain substances but don't have the same reaction to others? Everybody's different. You know, addiction is, um, it's it's a multifactorial disorder. It's a multifactorial disease, whichever one you want to call it, but uh, ailment, illness, um, situation. But there's so many different things that influence somebody's pathway to becoming addicted or not. So, you know, not everybody's going to have the same outcome. And so nobody knows beforehand what relationship they're really going to have with drugs or alcohol until it actually starts to transpire. So, you know you can't base yourself off of what somebody else is doing. So what might work for you or what might work for somebody else might not work for you and vice versa. So um, again, it goes back to my previous statement that, um, you know, California sobriety recovery, it's an individualized situation. Um, You know, how somebody looks at sobriety can be defined differently. I mean, ultimately, we want the goal of people to live healthy lives, to be functional, to take care of themselves, to care for their family, whatever obligations that they have, to be happy. And um, if that happened while using substances, um, then, you know, obviously, nobody wants it to be in a destructive manner. And um, that's really what, um, you know, the help that's out there is trying to, um, you know, provide. But uh, an individual needs to really um, gauge what's healthy for them. And um, it, it has to be based on, you know, uh, certain measurements and, um, you know, how it affects the, the, the people around them. And so if they can, if they can live that healthy uh, quality of life and if the quality of life is, uh, is good, um, if somebody who's previously addicted to a certain drug now can somehow manage themselves with things that might be uh, perceived as not in recovery by others, but they're living healthy, well, that might be an option for certain individuals. And, um, 
I think that th those who are seeking or use the word California sobriety are ultimately trying to say, you know, uh, we're trying to live healthy lives and not go back to those things that caused us such destruction. And if it means to drink or to smoke marijuana and not go back and live that way, um, this is our way to live a healthy life. And um, I don't want to speak on their behalf or anyone's behalf, but this is what I think they're, they're trying to say. I want to take a little bit of a turn with my next question. Can someone replace their substance addiction with a non-substance addiction, for example, like a gambling addiction or sex addiction? We see that all the time because, you know, with the common pathway of reward, you know, um, going through the brain, certain areas of the brain, um, you know, certain chemicals that are implicated in causing the certain feelings, you know, if, if behaviors somehow can mimic those things, um, yeah, you will see that shift from that substance use to a behavioral um, addiction, let's call it that, where that can, you know, also cause harm. Because when the reward is so um, outweighing um, the, the, the risk in, in, in somebody's mind, um, and again, not necessarily in reality, because if the risk is, is more significant, but yet somebody keeps pursuing that behavior because in their mind or their body, the reward is there. Um, yeah, we, we will see behavioral addiction start to take place. But again, it's still ultimately behaviors that now are causing destructive consequences and are being pursued in, in, pursued in an overzealous manner, uh, despite things going wrong in somebody's life. So um, we see that all the time, whether it comes to eating, it comes to gambling or maybe involving sex, that uh, even exercise. Uh, when things are in their extreme form and they're self-destructive and uh, destructive to people around them, um, unfortunately, we see that ha happen a lot. And um, it can happen with people who suffer from pre-existing addiction issues and from people who don't. But then they are developing a new addiction. Um, so, yes, we do see it happen. And... Um, it's unfortunate, but um, it's there. That's part of, uh, unfortunate part of addiction as a whole. Would you say that those behavioral addictions are more difficult to treat or not really? I, I don't know if the word difficult is correct, but um, they have um, a different type of intervention. You know, we, we, there are similarities in treating addictions um, as a whole. So, um, you know, it depends on who the person is. Those people and professionals that are out there um, focus on certain behavioral addictions and they've become more, um, I guess, um, astute at doing so. So the bottom line is uh, behavioral addictions uh, are a, a, a different type of addiction, but not necessarily have um, total separate concepts in terms of the treatment. There are therapies, there are medications, um, there are interventions that exist that um, mimic and are similar to those that treat other uh, substance t addictions. So um, not necessarily more difficult. It's just often incorporates a different uh, type of therapeutics. So you brought this up um, in the beginning of this episode. I want to talk about the origin of the abstinence-only model. Why is that the goal of many support groups and treatment plans? You know, because many people who, um, who sought sobriety um, years ago. And, you know, we do have a very 
um, popular and successful model with the 12 steps. And that has um, helped millions of millions of people um, across the world. And for many, you know, um, abstinence has been um, the ultimate goal or the factor factor let me use that word factor to attain the goal of not living that destructive life that being addicted um causes so they saw that because of the relationship with things that um go together with the multiple substances that often can um create relapse that abstinence achieved was abstinence um, achieved sobriety and recovery um, in, a, in a clearer path. And because our mind is so easily um, affected by other substances, um, that it was difficult for many, and it is difficult for many people to tease that out. And that's part of that, um, you know, the disease of addiction is because the pathway is common. Um, the, the high that's achieved is often through um, similar neuro, uh, neurobiological, neurochemicals and neurobiological pathways that putting one into the brain, the, the brain has a difficult time often teasing out one from the other. So abstinence um, in its entirety can, can clear the brain of the confusing messages that getting high off of one substance doesn't look like getting high off of another. And that's why many people who um, are seeking recovery and um, trying to achieve sobriety have to stay away from all of it because with it comes so many other behaviors. And, um, you know, the same drug-seeking behavior that happened often with cocaine pursuit or alcohol or sex, I mean, these all things went together. So... It's a lifestyle changing approach that often incorporates um, clearing the path and clearing the brain from all of these similarly influencing agents. And abstinence um, was not just the goal. I, I think, like I said, it was just a factor that helped achieve the goal of uh, living a healthy life of recovery. Okay. Hopefully that made sense. I know that was a little it bit. It does. Uh, it does. And, you know, the 12 steps, they have been around for a very long time. Yeah, the 12 steps have been around for a long time and been successful for so many people. So if it has been successful for so many people and many people that I know personally who would, that's just the way they live. And, and they're, they're, they're living proof that it works with that approach. And it's an abstinence-based approach for them, for them. And, um, and and they're they're living healthy lives, and they they couldn't see themselves doing it any, and they've tried it. See, see, for many people who live an abstinence based approach, it's because they've re- realized that using other substance in so called moderation for them did not work. They tried it. They they tried to stop using um, alcohol, but were using cannabis. And yet, once they use cannabis, ultimately, it didn't change their ultimate behaviors. Again, I'm not saying that this is the path for everyone. This is not the path for these maybe the path just for some people. But ultimately, you know, people need to develop and learn their own uh, recovery plan that works for them. 
and and being that more people have become open to this harm reduction model maybe this i don't want to even use the word california sober model but whatever the the, the model that they're able to um, stay away from other substances and use um, legal substances um, without being detrimental to them um, well i think the quality of life is the ultimate outcome we want to have for individuals as long as they're not doing anything illegal or things of moral turpitude or things that um, are destructive to their lives. I mean, they're their own, you know, uh, ultimately they're judged by themselves and by the those around them that love them. Um, and as long, again, as they're living healthy lives for themselves, I think that's the ultimate outcome that um, they're trying to achieve. So... Um, yeah, it's difficult. Abstinence works for some people. And now we see that many people are looking into alternate pathways to improve their quality of life. Mm-hmm. Okay. For those who are attempting to try the California sober method, do you think that there's some of them who are just basically replacing one substance with another? I mean, I don't think it's just the California sober seeking people. I think many people who are not ready to, to, to achieve sobriety and to live a life of recovery um, are not going to take the proper steps necessary to, um, to do that. And, um, you know, addiction is a, is, is a game of deception. The drug deceives us. You know, I often say it's not us to abuse drugs. It's the drugs that abuse us. And I, I've said that multiple times to many patients. You know, drugs abuse us. They change the way we think. They change the way we feel. They hijack us. And so when they change that so much, we also change the way we think even when we're not on drugs. And, um, you know, people look for ways to rationalize behaviors. And so I don't want to use the word excuse. I want to use a word that people use a, whatever means they need to rationalize what they want to do. And so now that, you know, um, for example, cannabis is, is legal so many places and recreational cannabis is available. Uh, people who might like to smoke marijuana are going to say that this helps me uh, if it facilitates their purpose of continuing to use. So, um, you know, they don't do something else. But, um, you know, can that be? Sure, it could be. Um, an excuse, a rationalization, whatever you want to call it, to continue to use things. But again, I mean, what are we ultimately trying to achieve? I mean, if these people use it and they aren't using it in a destructive way, they're not getting high behind the wheel, they're not abusing themselves or their, you know, family members, and they continue to live uh, successful lives and they're contributing to society, um, well, then it might work for them. And it might work for them. So again, it, it, what's the intent? It's hard to determine what people's intentions are. Um, you know, we, if we take things at face value, I mean, if psychologically we look into the subconscious reasons why people do anything, I mean, we're opening up uh, a, a huge um, discussion here. So I'm trying to take things at face value that, um, you know, um, it could, it could um, be somebody's uh, subconscious intentions to continue to get high. Um, but, you know, how, how can you tell that? Right. Yeah, that's interesting what you said about the subconscious intentions and, you know, how drugs change the way that we think and make us rationalize the use. You know, that's important to be aware of. 
Uh, with that in mind, how can someone know if being California sober will work for them or if it's going to cause them to spiral? You know, we have to look at certain risk factors, you know, um, what other drugs that they've been using in the past. Has there been any degree of sobriety while using something else? Um, you know, th 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 you have to look at those things. You know, um, some people might have been able to correlate certain behaviors, certain um, other substance uses um, with periods of sobriety. And I think that that's a that's a that's a a variable to look at. And um, I, I don't think anybody can be completely aware of what will work for them in, until they try it or attempt it. Um, but definitely, you know, looking at the supportive factors within somebody's life, looking at what kind of um, therapeutic frame that they try to, um, you know, put together with somebody who's willing to monitor them. Um, if they're if they're putting um, effort into creating other, you know, protective mechanisms in their in their in their social life, personal life, um, maybe getting a sponsor that is, is going to be there to help them in the event things start to spiral out of control. Um, there are multiple factors that people use, regardless if they are going to be California sober seeking or if they're going to seek sobriety in a different way. The point is, you know, the more protective things that you put in place and the more historical things that you look at from an environmental, psychological, social perspective that have been risk factors in the first place, you start to eliminate them um, and put protective factors in place, the more successful you're going to be ultimately to reduce harm and go back to those uh, risky behaviors. So, um, you know, I think that that would be the approach, but it, it would be customized to each individual. And if there's a professional helping them, that professional can help them look at those variables to see if that's something that they should consider uh, or not. I think the short answer is for many people is um, try and eliminate things that you know that can cause you to relapse um, and, and, and substances tend to go together. Um, I think in my experiences, I haven't found too many people that are able to, um, you know, do uh, those things early on. And it often takes a, a period where they do need to wash out a little bit and, and um, you know, clear themselves from illicit substances. But um, I think now that there's a ph philosophical change that is how ha that's happening around the country, um, you might start to see more attempts at it and then we might see different outcomes as a result so um a lot is um gonna gonna be left to be seen that's true it's an interesting topic and you know we'll see how it unfolds but at the end of the day if substances are causing problems in your life you know it's probably best to steer clear of them and if you find yourself wanting to stop but you're unable to that's a sign of addiction and you know, you should do some research and consider getting professional help. Um, it can be very difficult and sometimes dangerous to try and quit on your own. So seeking out professional help with detox can make the process easier and increase your chances of success. You can learn more about that at addictioncenter.com and also check out some other podcast episodes there. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bot, and thank you to everyone who listened to Straight Talk with the Doc.